This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Wild West podcast. Our guest today is photographer, filmmaker, surfer, author, and traveler of the Northern Latitudes, Chris Burkhard. Chris got his start as a photographer for surfing magazines, but he's parlayed that into this whole incredible Burkhardian empire. He's published a best-selling surf photography book and a best-selling children's book. He directed a documentary on hunting for surf spots across Iceland. It's called Under an Arctic Sky. You can watch it on Netflix. He's given a TED Talk. He has three and a half million Instagram followers. He's only 33 years old, but he has masterfully carved a career for himself. It's something he gets asked about a lot, how he built his brand and how he leverages social media to open up new opportunities. All social media is, all Instagram is, it's a texting device. It's a, it is a communication tool. And if you are not there to communicate with somebody, you'll never find success. There's no amount of hashtags or follower this or, you know, all these like tricks and things people try to do to gain followers. It's like... Yeah, you want to find success, just communicate. Chris is often traveling for work, but I was able to get him in our San Francisco studio recently to fill me in on how he built his career. He explains his fraught relationship with Instagram and how he manages his massive following, his philosophy for finding success in a crowded industry of photographers and influencers, and most importantly, just how he came to own and love a pair of alpacas that live with him and his family at his home on the central coast of California. I had a great time chatting with Chris, and I hope you guys enjoy listening. We'll get to my conversation with Chris Burkhard in a moment, but first, this brief message. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, we're back. Now on to my conversation with photographer Chris Burkhard. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Chris. It's oh, great man. to have you. I'm stoked to be here. I'm really grateful. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, 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 no problem. It was good you can make it over. Yeah. We were just talking about some of the testing that you were going through today <laughs> to learn a little bit more about your, your metabolism and like your rates of lactate. Exactly. Acid, lactic acid. So have you done anything with your, have you done any, any testing or analysis of your microbiome over the years? Uh, I'm sure I have. I can't specifically remember like the results of that, but but yeah, that's kind of been something that I've been really intrigued by and interested in in many ways. But I mean, I'm, if somebody was to offer it, I'd always be like, oh yeah, I'd do that. I'd love to learn. You know, I'd probably forget it in like five minutes. But I think there's like a little bit of an addiction nowadays because so much information is available. We almost just like want to know it all, regardless of if we're gonna adhere to those, you know, like those sets of that piece of advice or not. Totally. 
Yeah, it's funny. I know there's so much into personalized medicine now. Uh, one of the reasons I asked is we, um, I used to work at Outside Magazine, mm-hmm. and one of the things that we did before I left is we got in touch with the, um, uh, it was called the American Gut Project, I'm pretty sure, at UC San Diego. And wow. they, and we, and then we reached out to a bunch of adventure athletes and <laughs> asked them if they would like send their poop to yeah, the American yeah. uh, Gut Project and yeah. then like share the information with us. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure, and it's, it's, well, it's all like very preliminary. It's pretty right. nascent. And so it's not like somebody's going to, you know, learn that if they ate oats every day or something like that, yeah. that they could run a mile under four minutes. You know, it's nothing right, like right, that. Right, right, right. But one of the, th- one of like the basic findings that came up was just that people who spend a ton of time in the ocean, in salt water, so surfers can have significantly different bacterial makeups in their guts. Wow, essentially. interesting. Yeah. So that's why I was asking because you spend that's a lot of time in the water, yeah? Yeah, I, I used to spend more for sure. I feel like these days I'm, I, I guess growing up, it was all about the ocean, right? It was like, oh, you know, every single day the ocean was more of a babysitter than anything else. And just, <laughs> I would, you know, growing up, that's how it was. Um, but nowadays I kind of find myself climbing a lot more and cycling and doing yoga and other things, you know, I, to, to yeah. stay active and busy and this and that. And then when I get in the water, it's kind of, I don't know, you know, it's like that thing where like you grow up and you have this thing you love and you become, you know, professional at that thing. I guess you could say a surf photographer. And so yeah. all the best days, you're not in the water, you're shooting, hmm. you know, and so you're kind of sitting there staring at all the very best days and it kind of desensitizes you in a way. Like I love and admire the ocean. It's my favorite canvas of all time, but there's some bit of magic that's kind of been lost. I yeah. guess when you like have seen so many good waves that it's challenging to like be in California and be like, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not like super motivated, you know, as motivated as I was, I guess. So, yeah. To go surf. No, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, you, I was going to ask you because you described something similar um, in other reports that I've read talking about how you got into shooting and filming and surfing in like the Northern latitudes mm-hmm. um, in the Arctic, in Iceland. Yeah. And it seemed like there was something similar going on there too, where you were a surf photographer traveling all over the place, but just kind of lo- like it lost its mm-hmm. luster somehow. Yeah, yeah. And that's sort of was the, the preface, I guess the, the 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 thesis of my TED Talk kind of thing was that, was really that, you know, even the most glamorous job, I thought I had the dream job. Or I thought that what was the dream job, which I eventually attained at, at you know, in my 20s, you know, traveling around the world, shooting surfers on these white sand beaches in the tropics, you know, like the the glossy pages of magazines I used to flip through. I was literally like, I, fa- I was in those pages. I was there. Yeah. And it was amazing and it was incredible. And for a couple of years, yeah, it really did satisfy a part of me that I, I was so eager to satisfy. But like anything, you know, it, it became mundane. It became monotonous. And it also felt like I was using you know, some sense of talent that I felt like I had to basically sell this fake sense of adventure. You know, there was, mm. there was Wi-Fi and fine dining and you, you'd have this, you know, vision in your head of this big, grand, grandiose, you know, adventure and you'd turn around, there'd be a high rise hotel. And that's kind of what yeah. you were being sold. And I felt like I was helping sell that. And it just did, sort of made me feel a little icky inside, I guess you could say, like mm-hmm. just dumb it down and... I started seeking out other places that had been kind of written off as too cold, too remote, too dangerous. And I felt and I knew that just by where I grew up, I, I feel like we're all a byproduct of our environment. And I I grew up, you know, running up and down the dirt roads of Central California and looking for surf and, you know, this and that. So I, I felt kind of like a return to what was important to me and, you know, return to your roots, I guess you could say in some way. But, but ultimately, 
that sacrifice of going to those places and being willing to give something of yourself and it was risky and you had to decide who you're going with and that was even more important like the, the people you're with like you know you can't just be like oh well anybody could handle this you know it, it it required more of you and because it required more of you it meant so much more and I think that was a huge um, a huge draw of why the Arctic and specifically what the Arctic asks of you yeah. that made me so attracted to it yeah. I don't like to be cold. Like, let's oh, just let's just get that out of there. I was going to okay. No, I mean, like, I, didn't, I I grew up in California, you know? Like, I'm like I'm in Pismo Beach, like, 70 degrees all year round, you know? Like, yeah. I, did, I don't have some penchant for, like, oh, I love to freeze. Like, no, like, I suffer just like everybody else. I'm on those beaches, and there's snow everywhere, and I'm like, this sucks. But I love what you can create there, and I hmm. think that's, a, you know, has been sort of the addiction that I've chosen, so... So you're not like a Wim Hof devotee? No, I'm, I'm totally not a Wim Hof devotee. Oh, really? I, I, I thought but you I, would be. I do very, I very much do follow Wim's advice. <laughs> but like anybody, it's just like I struggle with it. You know, like, yeah, just getting into a cold shower sucks. Like there's nothing about it that feels good or like jumping into a cold lake or this and that. But I do love the feeling afterwards. And because I feel like I've, I've learned to put aside some of like the, the immediate like um, negative effects and look towards the long term, I've I, you know, been able to embrace it a little, a little more than others. Yeah. Uh, so Iceland, it's not just the surfing that makes it awesome, but that's what you kind of focus on. Well, at least in the, in your, your film, um, the Arctic sky, but, uh, what are the other, not, not to ask for like a sales pitch of Iceland, (laughs) but like, what are the other cool things about the Arctic environment that, you know, makes it wild and worth exploring? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Like it only takes going there once, right. For someone to, to really fall in love. I, I, I can't imagine, you know, people going to these places and, and just being like, yeah, it was kind of cool. You know, like I, I guess what it is to me is that there's still so much to be discovered. Even in a place that's just absolutely littered with tourists like Iceland, you know, like you'd walk 20 minutes, 10 minutes down any trail in any direction, nobody's there. Mm-hmm. There's still huge corners of the country that are absolutely empty. And I feel like there's less people, you know, uh, it's more raw. The environment, um, I think, provides greater photo opportunities. And if you are a photographer, or you're somebody who likes to take pictures, th- I guess the one like the biggest, you know, in some ways I always feel like I've just pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. I've always told them like, I'm not a good photographer by any means. I've just been the person willing to go to these places. Mm-hmm. And what happens is it's not hard to take a bad picture when you go somewhere that nobody's been. And so 10, 12 years ago when we were searching for surf in Iceland, it was very new and raw and real. And it was just like, yeah, you you couldn't take a bad picture. So I feel like that, to me, I, I still feel a lot of that when I go to the Arctic, wherever, wherever it is. There's some, you know, being on an empty beach is like really amazing experience. Totally. And I guess that's kind of part of it. So, When did you first go to Iceland? Um, it was like pff, 2000. Five, something like that, maybe a little earlier than that. But okay. um, but prior to that, I was I was doing trips to um, like remote Canada, like Haida Gwaii, Queen Charlotte Islands, mm-hmm. um, up to Tofino and, and kind of that area. And then and, and I think that was kind of my foray into cold water surfing. And growing up in California, obviously, I, I had traveled up and down the coast, and I I was uh, I was a byproduct of cold water surfing. But it it wasn't really until that first trip to Iceland, I think, that really, like, set in stone what was, what the potential was. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been back, like, dozens of times since then. 34 times, yeah. Yeah, so have you seen anything change in that time? 100%, yeah, tons of stuff. 
Yeah, mean, what kinds of things I, are? It's it's hard because I've been there. I've I've watched as you know the volcanoes erupted and tourism's changed. You know, when I was first going there, they were transitioning from being a a fishing based economy to trying to basically dam their rivers and sell geothermal energy and aluminum smelters and this and that. And, and as time went on over the 2000s, right, uh, tourism has become their, their largest economic source, which is funny because it's actually preserved its nature, right, because it was at a risk. So I've seen a lot of changes. I've seen, you know, beautiful places that were once very, very empty all of a sudden now have guardrails and tour right. buses and it's crazy but I've also been very, very privy to the fact that, like, these places are now also protected. And there's national parks and there's people raising up their voices to create a national park in the highlands. None of that would have ever happened without tourists, yeah. ever. And I call me, you know, optimistic, but I, I, I guess I've always just been, like, more of a realist that, like, yeah, I love these places. They're, they're sacred to me. They're special, this and that. But in the essence of it being sacred to me, I feel like it could be sacred to everybody if you let it. And so the reality is the only way to protect places is to hope people can experience them and want to raise their voice. It's also one of those places where I think that because we're so indoctrinated by seeing images and this and that, we compare our experiences to the experiences of others heavily. And so you often people are like, oh, it was a good trip, you know, but I didn't see that or I didn't see this. You're like, well, that seeing this or seeing that or photographing this or photographing that kind of determines whether the trip was good. And I think that's kind of mm. one of the, the scary things I think about our the, the day and age that we're at with social media is that there's kind of this comparison sort of scenario where we find ourselves in. I was going to ask you about that. So that's a great transition. <laughs> I know. I'm just like going all these random. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm a very uh, scatterbrained like conversationalist. So I'm sorry about that. No, I think it's totally interconnected. I think that the way that these places have been broadcast on social media and with these incredible photographs and just how popular Instagram has become, yeah. it makes them feel more accessible to people, yeah. you know, like a lot yeah. closer to home, I think, than, oh, than yeah. they I do I mean, before. I'm sure you've had like a relative or somebody you know who you're like, I dare never, I never imagined they would travel. They're like, I'm, we're going to Iceland. You're like, what? That's, you know, it's really cool. And I think that's actually like a really special thing that like I'll be on the plane and I'll, I'll hear people from like, random rural parts of America like over there and I'm like you probably never would have experienced this had you not seen it and made it and it felt accessible online just like you said mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting so one of the things you do is you teach photography courses yeah yeah what do, what do these people ask you like in the age of social media about how to become a photographer or an adventure photographer like an outdoors it's landscape great, photographer it's a great question it's funny it's it's one of my favorite topics is is just talking about social media but to be honest I don't wait for someone to ask questions I I kind of try to give the answers before the questions come because I don't I want people to understand very clearly that the path to becoming a photographer is not get a social media account then buy a camera then figure out how to use the camera like that that's not what it is like social media to me it I started out my career in editorial shooting for magazines and being on staff for uh, a number of magazines and really it was a it was the opportunity to share stories that were not being shared in the magazine. I would go somewhere, you know, in Vladivostok, Russia, and I'd be stuck in jail for 24 hours and deported, and I'd be flipping through the magazine months later, and I'd be like, where's that story? That was so crazy. That was the, you know, most pivotal moment of my life, and it just wasn't there. And so I started to use Blogspot, and I, um, I started a blog, and I would share these long-form, you know, like things, and then all of a sudden, you know, Tumblr, mm -hmm. and then Facebook, 
and then all of a sudden Instagram. And I was like, and for me, it's always been an extension of storytelling. It's been an opportunity to share these behind the scenes, these interesting moments, to give a piece of yourself. And what I really try to teach people, like if I could boil it all down, you know, <laughs> into kind of podcast format is that I, 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 I lead them through this kind of social media, like um, I guess you could say workshop where I try to, you know, pass on some of the things I've learned and, and, and categorizing which kinds of images I guess you could say perform well because the reality is we're asking people to experience something on like a two by two inch by two inch screen. Yeah. Does that mean that all types of photography are going to work well? No, it just doesn't. I would never want to put a detailed black and white image that for that I want someone to to, to really digest and take in. I, that's not where I want to put it. I want to put it on a wall or in a gallery or somewhere where they actually have to absorb it. So I try to try to go over like why cognitively do we respond to certain things? And then the really the, the golden rule to me is to not describe to people what they can already see. For some reason, people go out there and they spend this time, this energy, all this effort, you know, that they, 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 you know, brave freezing cold weather and go create something really beautiful. And then you, you, they, they share it online and all the, and they're just telling you like, oh, that they're describing exactly what the picture is. Well, the problem is you, you have eyes, you need to use them to experience this format. It's visual. That's one of the, the things about it that makes it so great. And to, to lose sight of what you could share about that experience, the visceral experience, the why, the who, the what inspired you, that, that's like such a lost opportunity. And I think the thing that really makes me just like cringe internally is when someone does, does you know, go through all this effort to make something really amazing and beautiful and then they just tell me that the mountains are calling. <laughs> they must go, right? And so just share some random quote that doesn't mean anything to them, you know, or maybe it does, but if they do, then tell me why. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, that's just kind of what, it's really, it's about, it's called digital storytelling. And that's like kind of how I always want to frame it because I feel like it's the only way I'm able to justify using such a soul sucking platform at times, <laughs> you know, is just to feel like, and to know that, yes, it actually can have a profound effect on people's lives, you know. What is your relationship with Instagram? You have like um, three and a half million followers. Yeah. It's usually I'm sharing, you know, the I'm really just sharing outtakes of my work. Like, and I and I um, outtakes of my work, whether it's commercial, whether it was editorial, whether it was um, shot on, you know, purely kind of personal project or something like that. And I usually it's a mixture of just me trying to, you know, what it comes down to is there's three types of people that I'm kind of aiming to serve, yeah. people that want to do what I'm doing. So I try to give those people a sense of like how I shot what I shot. Like here's the backstory. Here's the this. This is how I did it. So you could do it. The second one is people who just want to be entertained. They just want something beautiful to kind of drift away a little for a second. And I want to give them just something like interesting and unique and maybe tell them a story. The third thing is people who kind of want to know more about me and I want to, and those people I, I usually aim to like give them a piece of myself, a little more in depth, a little more like, you know, sometimes it's challenging to be that um, honest and truthful online because it's a scary world out there. But um, I feel like those people I, I really love to, uh, I really love to share just like the personal insights I've gleaned along the way and um, things about my life. And so, yeah, I've, I've kind of categorized it into those three groups. And that's mm-hmm. kind of, I guess, my relationship is is usually the voice I'm trying to speak through, like the is is filtered through one of those 
those lenses, I guess you could say. But I try to really, I'm a dad, you know, like I've got a family. I try not to be online too much. And um, my whole work is basically focused on being on the computer emails every day. So I don't want to be like sucked into Instagram a lot. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know it can be this, uh, this maintenance effort. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. Like you feel like you're the janitor of your own, of your like own marketing department. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. So is there an element of that to it? Like, oh man, got to feed the beast today. Um, yeah. You know what the, my favorite comment is always like, man, how do you do it? How do you spend, how do you answer all your DMS? And like, cause I answer personally, most of my DMS, if they're, and if it's an honest person asking a real question, hundred percent. And I tell people, I'm like, here's the deal. Like you don't need more than 20 minutes to on Instagram a day. What what you're actually doing is you're going on there, you you go to the explore page, you start aimlessly scrolling, and you start occupying your your time with just random stuff. Maybe you're looking at like Kook of the Day or some like fail video or something <laughs> stupid. Like the reality is that's what you're really doing. That's not Instagram. That's not using it as a business tool. That's not using it as a way to connect with people. All social media is, all Instagram is, it's a texting device. It's a, it is a communication tool. And if you are not there to communicate with somebody, you'll never find success. There's no amount of hashtags or follower this or, you know, all these like tricks and things people try to do to gain followers. It's like, yeah, you want to find success? Just communicate. You know, what What if you like were to go to your friend's house and open the door and blast, blurb some message in the door, you know, open the door, yeah, yell out at them. And then by the time they had a chance to come to the door and speak back to you, you closed it. That's, a, that's what you do every time you share something and then you ne- you fail to respond to any comments or connect people. So I, I see it as a way to connect and I enjoy people. And, and this is usually where people kind of like, they start to look really sad in the workshop <laughs> is that I say like, if you don't enjoy people, you will never find success on social media. I hesitate to call you an influencer yeah. on Instagram, but I think you probably fit that that the the qualifications for that on some level. My my uh, the way I've always seen it is this: is like if most of the work you do as a photographer requires you to promote what you're doing, what you're shooting, then you're an influencer. If most of the work you do as a photographer doesn't, then you're not an influencer. Hmm. I think that you can have influence without being an influencer. I feel like we have these two, you know, modern day words, influencer and content. And those are the two words I hate more than anything in the whole, <laughs> the whole English, you know, dictionary nowadays. But I, I would, you know, I, I understand that I have a, in some capacity of, of voice of influence and I just hope that I can use it as a, for, for good and not just to try and turn an income, you know? Yeah. So that's a great distinction, actually. I hadn't really thought about that, but it does definitely, I think you can kind of tell the the influencer when you see them versus the person who's just kind of well, sharing yeah. parts of their life. Yeah, it's like the reality is like I I I my business model breaks down into six revenue streams. Um, social media being the last one, and, and in terms of like like diminishing revenue. Now I could easily flip that around. I could sell crap every single single thing someone asked me. I I could try to make as much money as possible, and and that would be great. But I would lose part of my soul in the process and it would be terrible. Um, but I think that the, the grand scheme of things is like, I am, um, I, I like the purity of the platform and I like being able to just know that people can go on there and I can just give them something fun to look at or something meaningful or advise them on, you know, some thing I've learned or realized or whatever. Um, and I, and I just think that if, if you get away from that too far, then you, you know, it's, it's, you become dishonest in, in many ways. So, and, and I agree, like for me, there's so much stuff I shoot 
that I do for work that I would never share. Mainly because, like, I don't think you want to see the latest tech campaign we shot for so-and-so. Like, I just don't need to put that out there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have multiple Instagram accounts? I have my account, uh, Chris Burkhardt, and then I have a personal account that was personal um, that sort of became impersonal because it, a lot of people followed it. And so Did some, somebody blow it up? It's really just like a behind-the-scenes account of, like, life on the road and hmm. my house and my alpacas. And I share a bit of my family on there, and I um, I share a bit of, like – where we're kind of currently at if we're on a job or a shoot somewhere. Um, I try to, like, make it more – because I work with an amazing team. We have a, a staff of seven employees, and, I mean, mo- all the jobs that we do require, you know, a great team of people. So I, I just try to share, like, those experiences, you know. And it's fun. Like, I I love what we do, and I get a chance to work with, like, some of my best friends. So it's, um, it's a lot about that, you know, on the road and whatnot. But it's funny, yeah. There's definitely some more off-the-cuff, you know blue collar moments in there yeah i was just curious <laughs> um what did you do outside by the way i'd love to know um oh i was an editor there oh cool awesome we when i was there we covered it, one of the the first things that like i had assigned when i was there to cover that you had worked on was your children's book the picture book oh yeah we wow. came out the north no i think it was about the northern lights like kind of yeah, exploring it, it, the, northern lights the whole or, that was a part the of whole it. book was really just it was a i made it for my my own two boys my kids but it was a way to like inspire children to seek the answers to hard questions in nature, really. Like, you know, adults are easy. You, like, give them pretty pictures and, like, um, you know, a message, and we, like, we grasp it. But with kids, you have to, like, distill down the message to some some sense of purity so they can really, like, understand it. And it was really a cool process to, like, try to try to go through that and make a book for kids. And I'm, I'm honestly, it's still, like, the most successful project I've ever done and we never really envisioned that being so. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Just like, you know, kids continue to be born apparently. <laughs> so um, that's a good, that's a plus. And uh, I think, you know, a lot of the other books I've done have been like surf photography or, you know, the California Surf Project or Road Trip of California and things of that nature. So this was like a very different message. There's no photos, all illustrations, mm-hmm. really great illustrator, um, David McClellan and uh, we were able to work with. And, and, and really it just, I think that it, it there's a timelessness to it that I didn't I didn't expect and that's really cool and it's in like all these national park gift stores and Patagonia books oh nice yeah it's really cool I'm stoked yeah that brings me to something I wanted to ask you which is your approach to your career as a photographer has been very varied you've done all kinds of stuff like from the TED talk to this commercial work to the children's book yeah um, the documentary Mm -hmm. so how do you keep it how do you how do you keep it so varied what is it about that that is appealing to you well the funny thing too is like everything you just mentioned is really on, from the basis of like of personal work, you know, and I've always really put emphasis on on personal projects and, and meaningful long-term ones, not ones where you're like, in two weeks this is going to be done. It's like, no, this is a two-year thing. From the from the very onset of my career, I, I, I published a book, uh, The California Surf Project, at like 22, and um, that was, I, I, I won a grant for the best upcoming surf photographer from this thing, and I basically used that grant money to do a trip, and I, I, you know, sent the images to this editor, and and yeah, I had, I had a book very young, right? But but ultimately, that that experience it was published by Chronicle Books in San Francisco, um, and to be honest, that kind of set the stage for like, wow, these long term projects can actually be really fruitful, and like that book is still out and published, and it got me so much work, and it got me so much notoriety at a young age, and. And what I realized was like every career has this sort of ebb and flow. It, it, it's never just like this linear climb, you know. It's it's and usually it's not like this 
linear descent. You know, it kind of does these peaks and valleys and peaks and valleys and you you kind of can pick up speed on the val on the low and you know so for me it's like I did the my I did my uh, the, the the book California Surf Project and then we made a film called Arctic Swell that went online and that was again personal project free like I didn't get paid for it I did it with the company they just wanted to do it um, that got me my TED talk my TED talk got me this my the, you know this got me this Under Arctic Sky like was cool such a fun documentary to make um, yeah you know I did that trip as a part of an assignment, but like the film itself was 100% self-funded between me and my partner and uh, it did really well. And we did not make any money from it. But just because we didn't make any money from it doesn't mean that it didn't do very well. People always ask me, you know, like, so as a filmmaker, I'm like, whoa, whoa, I'm not a filmmaker. Filmmakers make money from films. I'm Mm -hmm. not a filmmaker, right? So for me, that was more just like the most expensive college education ever. But in the grand scheme of things, there's so many things that have come from that that will pay for itself and we have been lucrative. So I, my, my recipe for success has always been invest in yourself first, like in your portfolio, you want to go shoot something, you want to go shoot, I don't know, aviation photography, planes flying over, you know, Iceland's rivers or whatever, pay for it. Like nobody's going to just think, oh my, you know, I had an idea that you might be good for this. No, (laughs) like I've spent so much of my own money making these portfolios, building these portfolios only for them to be able to come out and then all of a sudden get hired as a specialist, as a professional in that field. But that's because I've invested. So I, I guess that's always been kind of the thing is like in, I've invested in personal projects. Those personal projects have benefited me long term. I'm, I'm trying to work on things that that not only are meant to stand the test of time, but also introduce my body of work to new markets. Hmm. And that's really what the California Surf Project did. It was in Barnes & Noble and Urban Outfitters and blah, blah, blah. And it was everywhere. People that would never have known my work as a Chris Burkhardt, the fledgling surf photographer shooting for Transworld, would have never known my work. So I was getting commercial work from that. And then everything I've done has tried to disperse, right? And so that's kind of what I... I'm I the way I see it and the way I try to operate. It's that was a very shortened version of like a of like an hour long you know explanation of how I do what I do. I guess so. Sorry. No, that's interesting. Yeah. What do you have coming up that you can any anything that you can talk about? Yeah, absolutely. I'm doing um, an expedition to these remote Russian islands off the coast of Kamchatka with um, with an amazing talented crew of filmmakers and and scientists and whatnot. It's a place I've always dreamt of going. I've been researching this place for like five years and it's by the grace of God, somehow we were able to secure a boat to go. And I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm also shooting a film on a, uh, a really good friend of mine in Iceland. His name's Ellie. And, uh, it was about, uh, he's a photographer in Iceland. And it's, it was about his near death experience he had and just like, you know, how the ocean saved his life. Well, um, it was like a feature length documentary. Yeah, it's or a short, short or? film. It'll be a okay. short, it's more of like a festival piece okay. like cut and we're just doing it. Um, it's just a piece of all. I mean, it could be the funding. Amy's out there. And they want to fund it. Let me know. But the reality <laughs> is, like, I, I just, it's just something that calls to me. Like, I just want to do it. This is like a personal project, you know. Um, pretty much everything I'm sharing is a personal project. And then um, my wife and I are working on another children's book. Um, that's kind of, um, you know, I think, you know, in this day and age, it's like sometimes people can't look past the fact that it that my children's book is called the boy who spoke to the earth people want to have a book about girls and we're like it's for everybody it doesn't matter but we're going to make one that's a little more focused on like girls journey of of and and what maybe some of them struggle with and my wife is just super talented so she's been writing that and um um, working on a memoir 
as well. Oh um, man, it's it's published. Uh, it's supposed to be published. It's published by Abrams, my publisher, um, in like a year and a half or so. Um, You're so young. Yeah, a trust memoir me. Already? Yeah, I don't want to. I never wanted to do this <laughs> at all. Trust, this isn't my idea. But to be honest, I thought in the beginning the memoir was you know the same as an autobiography when it's not you know it's about a specific period of time and a significant experience and really yeah. really this book is meant to be about you know finding self-worth and um and kind of i guess pursuing your dreams and 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 really relationships you know for me it's it's a lot about just like what what my drive was to do what i did and and who i felt like i had to prove it to and and I think it'll be a really valuable book for anybody, um, for any young person of any kind, kind of wanting to just understand, have a, have a greater understanding of like, of sort of life, triumph, struggle, love, and like, you know, feeling um, accepted and unaccepted. So yeah, it's, it's a really personal story. It's I'm really excited about. And um, I think it's going to do, I think it's going to really do a lot of good. Um, other than that, another book on Iceland's glacial rivers, which oh, I'm hoping cool. to publish in the fall. I've been working alongside Hallen Did, which is a, a nonprofit in Iceland to create a national park for the last like six years. And so um, this is just an extension of that of that. And um, and when I'm not doing any of that stuff, I'm just hanging with my kids, trying to like be a dad to a six year old and a four year old. So yeah. Yeah, you have a home, two sons, wife in um, Pismo or outside Pismo. Yeah, uh, just just outside Pismo or Rio Grande. So we have uh, the full the full breakdown is two horses, two alpacas, two cats, yeah, had, a dog, had to, had to four ask chickens. About the alpacas. Yeah. My, I mean, like this, you know, this is what happens. All, like my wife's like, yeah, let's, let's get, let's get a little land. Okay. Let's get a little land. Then all of a sudden you're like, let's fill this land with a bunch of random animals. I'm not an animal <laughs> person at all. My wife has fully broke me down and made me into an animal person. Like I was that kid who like got bit by dogs and was scared of dogs. Oh, and, okay. And we got a dog and then we got this. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I was terrified of horses. And I'm like, now I own a horse. I don't know how this happened. No, but it's also been like really, uh, uh, I guess you could say like a healing and amazing experience for me to like learn to just like love, learn to love in general. But, um, <laughs> but alpacas, oh my gosh. So they're just the most incredible animals. We got them because they were, we were, we were like, we need something to clear this land because it, you know, California, right. you know, fires, like it's, we live in a, you know, fire prone area. We have, we have five acres and there's a lot of dry stuff. So the alpacas were to eat all the grass okay. at first, but, and we, we kind of waited out. We're like goats, goats crap everywhere. They're kind of unruly. They're mm-hmm. sometimes they're hard to like, you know, get and, and, and alpacas are like good with kids. They're, they're watch animals. They like are the kindest. They'll like give you kisses. They're so sweet. <laughs> they're fur. You can, you can, you can harvest their fiber and their fibers, like some of the most, like the nicest in on the planet. Um, and they're freaking rad. They poop in one area. Ooh, like that like is they, nice. they poop in one little tiny, like one foot by one foot. Like they, they're very clean in that regard. So I'm like, I don't know that to me as a neat freak, you know, that kind of like makes me happy. I guess you could say. That's awesome. Yeah. I've awesome. heard something about, alpa- I've heard alpacas are not the friendliest creatures. Um, llamas. Llamas. Are not the friendliest creatures. Okay. Alpacas and llamas are like almost like two completely different things in okay. any ways. Like llamas are more likely to like spit and they're, they're a little more aggressive and they, okay. they don't think they're as attractive either. Um, that's just, <laughs> maybe that's what I was thinking. Maybe that's me. But, but, but usually alpacas are, are pretty, pretty loving creatures. Yeah. Yeah. At least ours are. You should come see them. They're cool. They look awesome. We, um, Q. we did that story and, um, 
I saw the photos that came back. Oh yeah! Oh my gosh! And you so, have like your arm wrapped around the, yeah. the necks of one of the alpacas, yeah. and I was like, that looks like the life. It's pretty rad. They're cool, man. They're like I. They're very zen, you know. Like and they mm-hmm. like are kind of one of those animals. Like if you're in a bad place, they're like not going to be attracted to you, sort of thing. So I don't know. It's good for me, I guess. But. Cool, man. Well, this has been great. I don't want to keep you any longer. No, you yeah, got more stuff to do. I'm super grateful to come by. It's it's cool to chat. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Chris. Thanks very much again to Chris for making time to come on the pod. If you want to keep tabs on what he's up to, he's a great Instagram follow. Look for him at Chris Burkhard. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California Travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Or if you've got questions for me or suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, please throw us a rating and a review. Our music today is a track called Fuzzy and True by the Mini Vandals, and it comes courtesy of the YouTube Audio Library. See you next time.